Lord, we just come before you. We thank you for this opportunity to come together and to worship you and to look at your word. We ask you to guide and lead us as we see this section and show us what you would want us to see. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah 51. We started the first eight verses here and talking about God's judgment and, and uh, work, uh, work on the people. And we're going to start at verse 9. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake, as in the ancient days, in the generations of old. Are you not it that hath cut Rahab and hath wounded the dragon? Are you not it which hath dried the sea and the waters of the great deep and hath made the depths of the sea a way for the ransom to pass over? Therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion and everlasting joy shall be upon their head and they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. I, even I, am he that comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid of the man that should die? And of the son of man which shall be made uh, as grass. What for, and forgets the Lord your maker that has stretched forth the heaven and laid the foundation of the earth and has feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor as if he were ready to destroy. And where is the fury of the oppressor? The captive exile has hastened that he may be loosed and he that should not die in the pit nor that his bread should fail. But I am the Lord your God that divides the sea, whose waves roared. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth, and I have covered you with the shadow of my hand, that I may plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth, and say unto Zion, You are my people. So lots going on here. It says, Awake, awake. Put on your strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the ancient of days, the generations of old. Are you not it that hath cut Rahab and wounded the dragon? So he's saying, God, awake. And this is the plea. Israel is in danger of being taken into captivity. And Isaiah is saying, wake up, God. Wake up, judge your people. Do what you've done of old. Have you ever heard anybody saying, maybe you've even thought it once in a while, God, are you still doing this, the miraculous things that you used to do? You know, and I hear that a lot from people. Well, you, you, you believe in this God who used to do miraculous things. Well, as far as I know, my God is still doing mighty things around the world. We may not hear them, but you know, I've seen even small things that, that are miraculous. And we read all the time about resurrections, about demons being cast out, and all kinds of different things. And I truly believe some of the storms that we're starting to see are God's hand stretching out to touch this world. To wake them up. Wake us up. Wake up. Wake up. I'm still here. I haven't forgotten. I'm still the God that controls everything. And I know a lot of pastors won't say that, but I truly believe that God is trying to shake up this world. That's why we're seeing storms in places we don't see them and, and earthquakes in places we don't normally see earthquakes and heavier and worse well you know fire fire sweeping through australia fires all through the west coast god's saying i want your attention wake up and this is where we're at and he's saying god you open up as in the ancient days in the generations of old so isaiah is saying the same thing 
God, you used to do all these things. Where are you? And this, this is a theme you see all through the scriptures. In Judges, the people are going, aren't you the God that delivered us and supposedly did all these great things? You split the, you split the Red Sea. You, you gave us victory in Joshua's day. Where are you? That's really close to all those events. And we see it over and over in the scriptures. God, where are you? Why aren't you doing what you've always done? You know, what, what was said was done in the past. And we've got to be careful of that because, again, I keep saying over and over again, we go through long periods of time where very little ever happens. And then you have these periods of time where lots of exciting things happen. Even in the Exodus, God destroys uh, Egypt over probably less than a year because Moses is 40 is 80 when he goes and delivers, and he dies at 120 as they wander 40 years in the wilderness. So there wasn't a long time between the 10 plagues starting and the 10 plagues ending. Because a lot of people, well, maybe it took, you know, years. No. The years are marked by his life. He goes at 80, he's called at 80, and he dies at 120, and he's with them as they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. So it was very quick. I think it was weeks. Well, yeah. we know that it was kind of, uh, it was closer to probably a month, maybe a month and a half because of the, the harvest cycles that were mentioned in there. So there is a period of time, but not, you know, a couple weeks max. But you know, 10 plagues, it destroyed and, it, and he destroyed it. And people look back. And then what do we have? We have several small miracles. He gives them water here. He gives them water there. He feeds them every day. But they get to the place where they're going, yeah, what's this big deal? We get, we get manna every morning. Their sheep don't go out. This is just it. There's huge, huge little miracles that they don't recognize. And they're going, who is God? What's he doing, what's he doing today for me? Well, he fed you. He gave you water. Your, your, your clothes are still good. Your shoes are still good. That's what I thought. But that is really a rare period of time where God was doing something miraculous every day. Beyond that, people went long periods of time without huge miracles happening in the, around them. I actually had somebody say it was a woman's worst nightmare to have their shoes last for 40 years. <laughs> yeah. But uh, we saying he's saying here, God, are you are you are you moving? And then he makes this: Are you not he that cuts Rahab? And Rahab was an ancient mythological dragon, but also they say it's probably Egypt that he's referring to. And I'll take either one; it doesn't really matter. God usually doesn't refer to mythologicals, <laughs> so I don't. Believe, so it probably is Egypt that he's referring to in this case. Uh, and you cut and you wounded the dragon. You, you, hurt, you hurt the dragon. So he's saying, God, you've done these things in the past. Where are you, Where are you now? God, wake up. <laughs> and I've, had people, I've heard people actually pray that in churches. God, wake up. You're, you're not doing what, you're, what you've been doing in the past. And I'm thinking verses like this to do that. And I, and I wonder sometimes, you know, we get so centered in on what is important for us. <laughs> that we forget God's got a different plan. It's the same statement I use when, I, when we talk about my favorite verse, Romans 8, 28, for all things work together for good 
and where everybody wants to put in my good. You know, and God doesn't have my good in mind at all. Now, he's going to do good for me. He has a good plan for me. But everything that happens to me isn't necessarily for my good at the moment. Long term, yes. When I get to heaven and get the rewards and everything, long term, it's for my good. But while I'm on this earth, a lot of things happen to us that are not good. People have lost their houses. Everything's burnt down. They've lost everything. And God says, I've got a good plan. And people are going, yeah, right. I'm, I'm here in destitution, and, you're, and you've got a good plan. Yes, God has a good plan if we're just patient enough to let him work his plan out. And it's amazing sometimes we have to change our look to say, God, I accept whatever you send my way instead of asking for God to move. David had that habit in the Psalms. David, go, David kept saying, God, go get them. Go get them, God. You, they're my enemy. Because they're my enemy, they're your enemy. You go get them. David was always doing these vindictive prayers that says, God, get them. You know, God, get them. They're, they hurt me, so you go get them. You, know, you can almost hear, my dad's stronger than your dad. Dad, go get him. <laughs> and God didn't always go get them right away. God oftentimes showed mercy and grace and had to teach David learn mercy and grace. And a lot of times that's God's attitude with us. Just learn to abide in your mercy, in my mercy, my grace. Live in the finished work of Christ and in faith rest. And we just sit back and say, God, okay. Does it mean we do nothing during those times? No, we do what we can. But we also learn just to rest and not struggle so much. And it's a, it's a better life when we just rest. And we're not struggling and fighting and, and moving and having a hard time. You know, if you get caught in a riptide, they say just relax, arch your back out of it, and you know, arch up and you come out of the riptide. If you fight and struggle, you're going to be dead in no time. You know, and there are times when we just go with the flow and say, okay, I'm just, this flow is overwhelming. I can wear myself out trying to fight it. Or I can just wait till I hit a little, little uh, circlet and, and can get out it okay. And now, if you're headed to a waterfall, fight with all you have. But, <laughs> but you know, so we look at this and God, and He's saying, God, stand up. And then, just in case God may have forgotten, in verse ten He says, "Are are you not He the dried up the sea?" <laughs> this is kind of an, I, I kind of find this very humorous. Is you know, as Isaiah is speaking here. You know, uh, God, stand up. Where are you? You've kind of forgotten about us. You fell asleep. And you, aren't you the one that dried up the sea? You're capable of doing these things. <laughs> uh, you know, and the waters of the deep. You made the depths of the sea a way for the ransom to pass over. So he's reminding God, God, you know, and it, but it was started out as a question. You know, are you not the one it's almost like he's looking for reassurance himself at this point. And I understand that. I've been in places where I need reassurance. I'm going, and I think sometimes, God, you know, you really could change this. I know you could. I don't like being where I'm at, and I know that you could. You know, you have done, and I've actually done kind of the same thing. God, you, you have dried the Red Sea. You fed the multitude. You died for my sins. You resurrected. God, could you just maybe <laughs> deliver? <laughs> You know, knowing that you can, this is a little more negative. You know, aren't you the one? <laughs> uh, 
But I see this whole thing. He's rehearsing back to God. God, you're the one that did these things. I know you can do more. I know you can come and help us. And then I love this in verse 11. This is a song we used to sing in church. Therefore, the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion. He knows that they're going to go into captivity, but he also says, you're going to return us. We are going to return, and we're going to come singing. And apparently that's exactly what they did. They sang when they came back to Jerusalem. And everlasting joy shall be upon their head, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. Now this is more than just the return of the children of Israel from the captivity. This is the millennial kingdom when all of Israel is going to be saying just what they said. God, aren't you the one that delivered us in the past? Aren't you the one that dried up the Red Sea? Aren't you the one that slew all of the firstborn of Egypt? Why are you letting so much go go on against us? And during the tribulation period, most of the world is going to die and the Jews are going to be the really directed target. And it says in Revelation that unless God had protected them, they would have been wiped out. And he puts their hand over them, he protects them, and keeps Satan from getting hold of them. And then they'll come into the millennial kingdom with great rejoicing. (laughs) They're coming into Zion and Zion is now going to have King Jesus sitting on the throne for a thousand years and the world will be ruled from Israel by Jesus. They will be a time of great joy for the Jews. They will recognize Jesus for who he is at that point. <laughs> well, it says, and actually Zechariah says, you will ask me who, they will ask me who put those wounds into your arms, and he'll say, my friends, my friends, you know, namely you guys. <laughs> Yeah, and they'll know who they, what they had done and they'll recognize what they had done. It, it, it tells us that they do. It's hard to believe, but they're going to recognize because the Jews have a trouble with Christians because so much has been done in the name of Christ. Now, everything that's happened to them has not been properly done, but a lot of it has been done in the name of Christ, even by the reformers. The Christian reformers, the, the Catholic Church brutalized the Jews. The reformers were no, no nicer to the Jews. It's only been in recent years that the Christian church has really been looking at the fact as a, as a whole, or as a, the redeemed portion of the church, uh, that the Jews are important in God's people. For a long time there was what was being taught as replacement theology. The Jews, you Jews rejected Jesus, the church now has all of your promises and, and has replaced you. Not what the scripture says. God says he's loved his people forever and has not denied him. And the book of Revelation tells us that the Jews will be the whole centerpiece after the rapture. Everything is about them. The millennial kingdom is really about the Jews to fulfill God's promises to them. We come back as a church and get to rule with him as his bride in, the, in that position. And that will freak out the Jews as well. Who's this Gentile bride of the, of the Messiah who's ruling? You know, uh, but everything's about them. Literally for a thousand years, everything is about them. And the rest of the world gets the benefit as well, but 
it's about them, giving them everything that they've been promised. And then we'll, everything will be destroyed and we'll, everything will be turned around and, and made new. But everything is about the Jews during that period of time. And that's the time they're looking forward to. It's why they rejected Jesus, because he didn't come as the conquering, conquering Messiah. It's why the, the, the Melchizedek, not Melchizedek, uh, Maccabeans were almost accepted as Messiahs because they almost threw Rome off. And people looked at them as the Messiah for a while because they were being victorious until everything fell apart. And they were looking at them and go, here's a Messiah. They, they, here's Rome, they almost threw them off. And they're looking for that person who's going to be the one that makes peace with them, which is why when the Antichrist comes and makes a peace treaty with them for a couple of years, they're going to be happy. Because they're going to go, oh, here's Messiah. Because we know how bad it is, and it's going to get worse when the church is taken out. So the Messiah, can, the Antichrist can come up and say, here we go, we've got peace. And a lot of people, well, how can he make peace? He's the one that's stirring up the trouble in the first place. All he's got to do is stop stirring up the trouble, get rid of the ones that are going to keep trying to make trouble on their own, and you got peace. It's not that hard. He knows how to get rid of the ones that are troublemakers, and he just doesn't stir up any more trouble for a few years. So it's not hard for the Antichrist to make peace. He just stops stirring up the pot. Because how easy is it to really make peace when everybody's upset? If you're really careful and walk carefully, and nobody's trying to make things worse, you can calm down just about any situation. So if the Antichrist is coming in and not stirring up the trouble, you know, and he gets rid of the ones that are really hot-headed, be not a problem for him to have peace for a while until he stands in the, in the temple and says, I'm God. And their eyes were opened up. That, hey, you, went through, you guys accepted the wrong Messiah. And that'll happen. And when it will happen? Probably pretty soon, the way things are looking. How soon? I don't know. It might still be a long time away, but it's looking like everything is moving in that direction. And it's an exciting time to live. But it says, they're going to come with rejoicing unto Zion. And then it says that they will, they will have mourning and sorrow will flee away. The millennial kingdom is something we can't even fathom hardly. People go back to long lives. Animals are back to where they're supposed to be, peaceful, nonviolent. The child can play there at the aft's nest without having to, having to be worried. The lamb and the wolf lies down together with no worries. People live to be you know, a long life again. You know, it says that somebody who dies before 100 is considered a child. Uh, you know, and we can't even fathom that, that kind of thing. And there's a peace. Not perfection because sin still rules and reigns because sin hasn't been gotten rid of but it's going to be more like it was supposed to be. And Jesus reigns. What a time that will be. We will be there as his bride, ruling with him from Jerusalem. Will we have access to other places? We have our glorified bodies, so we probably still have access to heaven. We can, we'll have access to do whatever else we can do, but we will be his co-regents in this world. It's an exciting period of time to look at. And then he goes, I, in verse 13, uh, 12, I, even I, am he that comforts you. 
Who are you that you should be afraid of men that shall die and of the Son of Man which shall be made as grass? Now we switch over to God speaking. I, even I, am he that comforts you. One of the greatest things about being a Christian is the comfort of God. Knowing that he's in charge and he's always there. And he brings comfort. And then he even goes on, why are you afraid? Why are you afraid of a person who will die? And in case that's not enough, by the way, they're like grass. They come and go with no, in no time at all, and I see them much, in a much different way. This is something that is really important for us to understand. You know, if we're fearful, and Jesus said it, you know, don't fear man who can only kill you. Fear God who can take your soul. And that would include Satan. Satan can't take our soul if we're God's. Satan can't take our soul. He can't do anything but kill us. And that's the worst he can do, and that means we go before God. Or as I used to say, the worst he could do is almost kill us. All right? Because then I've got to start all over again after the pain. And sometimes I think Satan should have learned his lesson, but he doesn't learn his lesson. He still goes out and kills Christians instead of just trying to hurt Christians. Yeah, you get dead, you're home. And if he kills you, you get the martyr's crown if he kills you for being a Christian. If he just kills you, you know, you still go home. So it doesn't matter. Our fear is not on anything that can happen to us in this world. That gives us a great boldness if we really truly believe it. What can they do? Paul had that boldness. He didn't care. He was going to serve God. We were listening to an unshackled this, uh, the other day in the car about a Muslim man who kept getting beat everywhere he went and his parents tried to poison him and he, everybody's trying to kill him. And he's going, God is protecting me and as long as he protects me, I'm going to preach in these Muslim countries to my family. You know, and it's like, wow, would I have that much faith when everybody's trying to kill me? I don't know. Uh, if God had ordained it, I hope that I would have the grace to do it. But he was just being bold and saying, I'm going to live this way. And there are many people in this world that live that way knowing that their lives are in danger, always, especially in the Muslim world and most of the Asian world where if not Muslim, it's Hindu or Buddhist that, that reign. And they are just as violent toward those who change religion. We don't know what it's like here in the West. Now, it's getting bad in Europe getting worse in America, but we're not, we're not in danger yet. There's coming a time, though, when it's going to be a danger to be a Christian. And we're going to have to say, God, I'm going to serve you no matter what. All they can do is kill me or hurt me, but I'm not going to deny you. And this is important. Don't ever look at denying Christ or even making it look like. Because people have said that, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, well, they could have bowed down worshiping God and made it look like they were doing it and not worshiping the idol. No, they were going to stand up and say, no, we are not even going to look like, you know, because it's right. They could have bowed down worshiping God and, you know, and it made it look like they had done what they were told. But they weren't. They were going to stand out and say, God, I'm going to stand for you no matter what. Uh, during the first century, there were many Christians who went up to the altar and dropped the, the grain on the flame and said that uh, Caesar is Lord and so that they could go back and repent later so that they would keep their life. 
You know, and that's between them and God. It still was a bad witness for God, and I hope that they were convicted of it and did better the next time that they had to do it. But there were a lot of people who just went up and said, no, Jesus is Lord, and ended up dying. You know, it's not the end of the world. Sin is not going to take you out of heaven. You know, and this is something that is very important for us to understand. There are so many people that believe that somehow if I sin or do, the, do enough sin or a bad enough sin, I can be rejected from God. No. He f- took all of our sins away. There's no big sins, little sins before God. Matter of fact, sin is paid for. The only thing that happens is how we dressed before God. In Jesus' righteousness or my own righteousness. By accepting Jesus Christ, I get to stand in, my, in his righteousness before him. And, and I've said this several times. I truly believe that when people stand at the white throne judgment, they're going to be judged because they're not in the righteousness of Christ. They're standing before God in their own righteousness, which Isaiah later on and when we get there says is filthy rags. And they're going to be standing before God saying, God, let me into your kingdom. See how well dressed I am? <laughs> I got all my good works on. And when they finally see their good works the way God sees their good works, they're going, to re- they're going to all of a sudden realize they're condemned. Because so many people, you hear it when you witness, well, what do you think you have to do to go to heaven? Do more good than bad. Okay, when you stand before God in your filthy rags, you can, you can tell him how you deserve to be into heaven when, when his dress code is the perfect righteousness of Christ. And this is very important for us. That, like, for us, when we live ourselves as Christians... I don't deserve anything from God. What do I deserve? I deserve hell. I deserve punishment. What do I get? I get clothed in Jesus Christ and I get all the blessings of Jesus Christ dumped on top of me because I accepted him. And when I stand before God, it'll be in the righteousness of Christ and he'll say, oh, come on in, my child. Come on in. You're perfect. You've got the right clothes on. Do you realize how many people have looked at the scripture, the, the parable where Jesus had the wedding feast and the man comes in without the right garment on? Most pastors do not ever teach that correctly. You know, they think it's some infidel coming in, and it is an infidel, but it is God coming through the feast and saying, why are you here? I provided the clothes. You don't deserve to be here and cast them out. That's the world. That's, the, that's going to be a lot of Christ, people who say they're Christians. You know, that never accepted Jesus, never got clothed in the righteousness of Christ and tried to go into the, you know, want to go into the banquet and God says, "Uh uh-uh, I provided the clothes and you're not wearing the right clothes. This is important for us because no matter how much good I do, even after I'm saved, it's not good enough. It's still the righteousness of Christ, which is why I'm going to be rewarded for everything God does through me. And that's the good news. All I got to do is let God do stuff. Now, that's not easy sometimes. <laughs> I like to get in the way. God, I can do this. I can handle this problem. I don't need your help. And God's saying, well, why don't you just let me do it? You know, and we get into our mindset of, I've got to do something. I've got to do something. And I've, over and over, I've seen this happen. People going, you know, you witness to somebody and tell them that it's all Jesus. Well, what do I do? Nothing. Well, what do you mean? You just let God crucify your flesh, you let him clothe you, and you do nothing. 
but I got to do something. No, you just let God work through you. You listen to him. And again, I say, you know, that doesn't mean we go to church, we do nothing, but we're not doing it for the, right, the wrong reasons. Most of the people who work in churches out there are trying to please God. If I do enough good things, God will, God will give me what I want. You know, if I just, I read my Bible for three hours every day and I pray for two hours and I, you know, I come to church every single time the doors open and, and I go to the soup kitchen and I work there and I, and I give all this money, somehow God will be pleased with me. God is pleased with you when you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. He's never going to love you any more or less than he did when he died for you. And he says, just accept. You know, again, we work it out because he changes us and we want to be kind. We want to do these things. But just, we're not doing it because we're saying, God, I, <laughs> I want you to notice me. God, you know, God, if it wasn't for me, you would, you would just not, nothing would get done. And we laugh about this, but you know, sometimes there's people with lots of money that, will, that give lots of money to the church, and in their mind they're thinking, this church wouldn't be anything if I didn't give. Well, I think God would manage to find somebody to replace your gifts. You know, God's going to use your money. If you want to give it to him, he's going to use it, but you're not getting any benefit if your attitude's wrong. And the same thing for service. Just because we serve God is not making him love us anymore, care for us anymore. But it's God who comforts. Verse 13. And forget the Lord your maker. So now he's going back. He says, you know, you should be, you know, you should, should you be afraid of man that die? And should you be afraid of the man who would be like grass? And forgets the Lord your maker that has stretched forth the heaven and laid the foundations of the earth and has feared continually every day, is feared continually every day because of the fury of the impressor as if he were ready to destroy and where is the fury of the oppressor? This is a very interesting con con question God's asking. He says, you're getting so busy doing everything. I'm the one that created everything. And you're worried about an oppressor who's going to fall. As a matter of fact, if you tie this with Job, you're worried about the oppressor who has to ask God for permission to do anything in the first place. You know, this is the place where we can have our rest and peace. Nothing happens to us without God's permission. And as I've said many times, sometimes we might wish that God would give a little less permission, but nothing happens to us that God hasn't allowed to happen. And there's great blessing in that, great comfort in that. Okay, God, don't know why you allowed this, but you allowed it. Give me the peace. Give me the strength to get through it. Give me the grace to get through it. And that is where our comfort comes from. My great comfort is in that God is absolutely sovereign. Nothing happens that he doesn't allow. Even when it's the consequence for the sin that I did, it's because God has allowed that consequence into my life. Because he has the capacity to say no. Okay, you deserve this, but no, this isn't going to happen. How many times in each one of our lives has that been true? We know that things did not happen to us that should have happened to us. You know, many times in our lives that we go, uh, well, I know, I know I did this, and this consequence is what I was facing, and it didn't happen. 
And that's God divinely stepping in and saying, not this time. Not this time. You're not going to get what you fully deserve for whatever reason, whatever his reason was. There's all kinds of those times when he steps in. Now, does he always step in? No. Sometimes we face the consequence. Sometimes we may even die because of the consequence of being stupid. But God's saying, okay, this is what I'm allowing. But he always has his hand in what's going on in our life. He always has his hand in what's going on in the lost person's life. Because Satan's goal is to destroy them. So God has, Satan, you can only go so far. He's not going to let Satan take that lost person to a place where they're so upset that they cannot accept God. And there are places where you can get that bad. If enough bad things happen, and we see it, some people go, I just can't, I can't do it anymore. I will not, I cannot accept. I don't, need, I don't believe that they've gotten to that point, but in their mind they have. But God is not going to let them really get to the point where they cannot accept him. Because his love is, here's my gift. Now it may be the last, last straw, the last day when they reject him and then they die. But God has always got his hand out there saying, I know you're going to reject this, but one more time, one more time. I know you're going to reject it, but here, when you get to heaven, you're not going to, you know, you, when you get to the white throne judgment, you're not going to be able to say, I had no opportunity. I didn't know better. He's going to say, here were all those opportunities you had and you rejected every one of them. God gives us opportunities. And here he's saying, don't worry about the oppressor. Satan thinks he's really the, the bomb, you know, you know, but he's a chained lion that can only go as far as God lets his chain go. And he has to ask for permission to do anything. That's our great comfort. God's adversary is at his beck and command. And his adversary thinks he's an adversary. And God says, you're just a created being. I could take you out with a thought. Satan is not the adversary of God. Not from God's perspective. From Satan's perspective, he is. But it's like a gnat flying around. He can ignore, he can you know, uh, annoy you a little bit. But, you know, we can just crush the net with, no, with nothing, you know, no, without even a second's thought. That's Satan compared to God. He's just a little gnat. And not even significant enough to bug God. Because he doesn't get to do anything without his permission. He just gets to be the one that tests and bugs us. <laughs> but even with us, he has no power without God. You know, here's this being who thinks he's everything who's nothing. And it's kind of interesting in, in Revelation where it tells us that when we, when we look upon Satan, we'll go, this is the one that bothered the world? This one? This, this thing? When we get to see him from God's perspective, through God's eyes, and going, that, that's what, that, that is what <laughs> bugged everybody? Everybody was afraid of of that? Now, for now, though, he's got a lot of power and a lot of, <laughs> a lot of authority, but he really doesn't have any at all without God giving it to him. And even if you're not, he has no authority because, again, and I've said this over and over, if he had full authority, people would die before they're born. 
because he'd want to take them to hell. He wouldn't want them to be born. Also, you said even the ones that aren't saved, he still don't have control over them. He doesn't have control over them. He is not the God. And even in hell, he is not going to be God. Now, he has, until Jesus died, he had the, the rights to this world because Adam and Eve gave it. But even then, the owner was God. The property right belonged to Adam and Eve. They gave it to Satan, but God still owned it. So, Would God give Satan a long release for the unsaved? Probably, to a degree. Yeah. To a degree, he has more leash with them, but he still can't take their life without God saying, allowing it. Because if he could, he'd just kill everybody. Before they know Jesus, he'd just kill them and let them, let them go to hell because that would be his fastest way. I mean, if, if I was him and, you know, and I had the ability to kill him, I'd have wiped out the world because that would hurt God to send his people to hell. He doesn't have, God is sovereign and we've got to really understand the sovereignty of, now why does God let things happen the way he does? That's a whole nother story see, that we won't ever understand. See, I didn't know that God had a leash on him that he would have to ask God. I, I mean, I learned that from you, I think, in what you preached, because I really never knew that. Well, because again, if he had full say on all the lost, you wouldn't have had a chance to get saved. You would have died long before you had a chance to get saved because... That's the way you'd go to hell. As a matter of fact, you would never have been born because he would have killed everybody else up before then because if he had that much authority, he'd just take everybody to hell before they even had a chance to get to meet a Christian. But I didn't think about that one. It's just that I just didn't know that God had a leash on him. Yeah. Yeah, because his goal, ultimately his goal is to take everybody to hell. And so the easiest way to do that would be to kill them before they have a chance to know God. He's not going to rule anybody, though. No. Well, his goal is to de depose God. You know, I will be like the Most High. I will sit with them. But he's not, he's not looking at individuals. His first purpose on people is to hurt God. You know, how do the gangsters try to get hurt people? You know, you get somebody who's not afraid for their own life, so you, hurt their fam you, you threaten to hurt their family. You hurt people that they love. God loves us, so Satan is trying to hurt us to hurt God. You know, his ultimate goal would be to sit on the throne because that's what he said. I don't know if he's deluded enough to really believe that it's going to happen still, but I mean, Isaiah, you know, Isaiah, he said, I will be like the Most High. I will sit on the mount. All right? So his goal is still somehow to depose God and sit in his place and rule not just man, but all the angels and all the universe because he was able to depose God. Now, the arrogancy that he has is crazy. But that's his goal. Okay, his goal is not to rule us per, per se. His rule is to depose God and then rule us by default. Okay, because it doesn't matter if he, if he was to take and conquer us. God is still there. And hell is still waiting. If, unless he can defeat God... His destiny is hell. We're just a small thing in the in the. We would be the reward if I can conquer God. I get everything else. Now I'm going to hurt the I'm going to hurt the part that God loves to try to get to Him, which is why He's tried to kill the Jews for all these years. Because if He can get rid of all the Jews, the Millennial Kingdom can't 
happened, and then God has not been God has been proven to be infallible because it, before it was to keep Jesus from being born, and now since then it would be if he can get rid of all the Jews, then the millennial kingdom can't come, which during the tribulation period it will be if I can get rid of all these crazy Jews, then God can't come and rule his people. So and he'll, if you bring up just like this, of course, of course he could. Right. He is being used for just that purpose, for that we will have a free will so that God will say, okay, you listened to the wrong voice. My voice was here. You were listening to the wrong voice. And so there, that's, you know, what kind of battle's going on? It's mind-boggling to think of what's going on. But, you know, when we start really looking at our life and seeing how God uses the bad things in our life to really grow us and the hard times in our life to really grow us, and sometimes when we fail, it's to show us that, you know, well, I'm not quite as strong as I thought I was. I'm not quite as righteous as I thought I was. All right, God, I need you more. And then we get through a problem and we go through it leaning on God and, and trusting in him. And we go, wow, that was, that was neat. And God says, okay, we got, another, we got another test coming up. Let's see if you can stay, stay leaning on me. You know, but Satan is in control of God. All of our lives are in his hands. All the lost lives are in his hand. Okay? We used to sing a Sunday school song, he's got the whole world in his hands. Literally, he has the whole world in his hands. Lost and saved are in his hands. Now, yes, he will give Satan much more freedom with the lost than he is with his children. But he's still going to tell, tell Satan, you can do everything but touch their life until I'm ready for you to take their life. Because he's going to give them every opportunity to hear the gospel, every opportunity to come to him or reject him. And then when the time comes, he says, okay, Satan, you can take their life. And then they, they will pass. And sometime we'll lose our life. But for us, it's just taking a step from this world into the next and being in God's presence. What a blessing when we really, truly understand that God is sovereign. Nothing happens without his permission. Now, we may not like some of the things he gives permission for. We may not like what we see, but we also don't see the beginning to the end. We don't understand why he's doing things, and we may understand it when we get to heaven, and maybe he shows us from a higher perspective and saying, See, this is what you went through. This is why this happened, so that this could happen. Why did Israel get put into bondage into Egypt? So that they could be delivered from Egypt in a mighty way that would be talked about for all the rest of time. Okay? If they hadn't gone into Egypt, they hadn't been put into bondage, then God wouldn't have had to have delivered them as mightily as he did. <laughs> or all the other stories that are true. But we see this and we're going, those poor Jews back then, they didn't understand what was going on. They didn't know that they were going to be the centerpiece of all of their history from that point on. They didn't know that they were going to be remembered by Christians, Gentiles, for 2,000 years. They didn't realize that they were going to be remembered from that point forward by their people with every story that is told how God delivered them. All they knew, we're being, we're being hurt. These, these whips hurt. The lack of food hurts. 
You know, we're slaves in this country. What's going on here? We're God's people. And they questioned everything, much as we do when we go through hard times often. If we're not really understanding the sovereignty of God and that all things work together, we do the same thing. Even if we do understand those things, we may still do the same thing. God, this, this life is hurting. Why are you letting all these things happen to me? And God's saying, I've got a plan. Matter of fact, I have a good plan. You know, all the martyrs of the first century might have been saying, God, we don't understand why you're letting us die. We, we followed you and now you're letting us die. And now 2,000 years later, we're looking at them and saying, look, at, look, look what they went through. They were faithful. They were faithful. And they're getting blessings because of their faithfulness in dying. And we need to be able to say, God, I want to be faithful. When we're in pain, people may see and we'll stay faithful. People may be encouraged by us going through that pain and saying, wow, they stayed faithful and look how hard their life was. And they get, they get encouraged. We had to suffer so they could be encouraged. You know, you look at Joseph. He got slilled into slavery and then got thrown into prison under false charges just so he could spend 13 years in that, in that bad condition so he could be raised up as the deliverer of his people. You know, during those 13 years, I'm sure he wasn't saying, God, I really am excited about being here. I really like being a slave. God, I really like being in this dungeon. I know you've got some really good plan out there for me. I have no idea what it is, but you must have a really good plan for me. He did not know any of that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego tell, talking to Nebuchadnezzar. Our God can deliver us, but whether he does or doesn't, we will not bow to your idols. Now, they did not know that they were going to live. They fully expected to die when they were thrown into that fiery furnace. But they came out unscathed. And yet others die. Why? God has a reason. Do we always know that reason? Nope. Will we, will, sometimes we will never know those reasons why. But God has a plan. Like even Daniel thrown into the lion's den, and then those other people, the whole family gets thrown in, and they get killed. And they get killed immediately. And Daniel was being thrown in the lion's den. He expected to die. You know, these people that get through the middle of these trials don't expect a miracle in most cases. They know God is capable of it. They know God can. But you're pretty arrogant if you go in saying, ah, I, I have nothing to worry about. God's going to deliver me. You go in with that kind of arrogance, you're probably not going to be delivered. You'll be delivered straight into heaven. All right? So we don't want that arrogance. Our attitude should be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. My God can, but whether he does or not, I'm still following him. I am not going to bow. I am going to follow him. And if I die, I get to be before him. If I live, then you get to have a miracle that you have to deal with. And we need to be in that place, always, because God is in control. And why he does one, rescues one, and not the other, who knows? We look at the, the hiding place, Corey Ten Boom and her sister Betsy. They're both in the same place for all their, their time. Betsy dies, and Corey gets to walk out. Why? Betsy had the stronger faith. She was always the stronger Christian out of all this. She was the one that dies, and, and Corey gets to live. From a human perspective, it's like, God, uh, 
Corey deserved to die. Betsy deserved to live. What's going on here? God had his reasons. But it may be true, too. She deserved to go to heaven first. Uh, but we just don't understand sometimes. Most of the time, we don't understand why God does what he does. Because we're not God. We don't have the same perspective that God has. And so we go through all of these things. And then in verse 14, the captive exile hastens that he may be loosed and that he should not die in the pit, nor that his bread should fail. So he says the captive exile. You know, and this is kind of an interesting statement. The lost world are captives. They are prisoners of war in this battle, and they're born that way. They're born into captivity of sin. You know, this is one of the things, and I loved it in the Truth Project, where Dale Tackett was talking about the world is captive. They need to be released. Sin has a hold on the world and the people, and even us as saved people, sin has this hold on us if we're not careful. And it says, I want you to do what I want. And how many times do we struggle with that? Struggle with the, the, the sin that just pulls at us and pulls on us, trying to get us to do the sinful. And it says they're captive and they're, they, they, they want to be loosed. And then it says, verse 15, but I am the Lord your God. So he says, I am. Yeah, I am the Lord your God. And then he's reminding him, you go, he goes, you reminded me about the seas? I'm the one that divided the sea. <laughs> okay? I divided the sea whose waves roared. The Lord of the host is his name. The Lord of the army. The Lord of the, of the, of the host, army. And I have put my words in your mouth and I have covered you with the shadow of my hand that I may plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth and say unto Zion, you are my people. I am the one that did it. He goes, I put my words in your mouth. It's amazing to me that God still to this day puts his words in the mouth of his people. And oftentimes we're not even aware that they're his words. And I don't know how many times I've heard it, and I may, maybe you've heard it where somebody goes, wow, you said exactly what I needed to hear, or you really encouraged me. And sometimes you're thinking, what did I say? What did I do? What encouraged this person so much? Because they're God's words put in our mouth. And God says, I have done that. And then I love it. I have covered you with the shadow of my hand. God's hand is over us. He's ready to hold on to us. He's ready to pick us up. You know, I kind of picture this as the parent walking with their kid who's just learning to walk. Ready to catch their kid if the kid's ready to fall. You know, I'm not really not right, not right there with you. I'm not holding you completely, but I'm ready to catch you should you fall. And God's right there. The shadow of his hand right over us saying, I'm here. I'm right here. Nothing is going to happen to you because I'm bigger than anything that can happen to you. 
That comfort of your parent being right there. God is that parent right there. Now, we also understand that when we're letting our kids grow up, sometimes we need to let them fall. Sometimes we need to let them fall down and pick them back up and help them back up because that fall helps to learn. Pain is a great lesson. You know, when I'm riding my bike down the road with no, arm, no hands on the candlebar and fall down, I kind of learned that maybe that wasn't such a smart move to do. I'm riding downhill and I'm not paying attention, you know, and I fall down, I kind of go, okay, either you need to use the brakes or get a better bike. <laughs> okay? Sometimes God will let pain come into our lives just so he says, what are you going to learn through this? Sometimes it's as simple as, well, I needed to trust you more. I shouldn't have fought against you so much. I shouldn't have walked away from you. But God is right there. Just as we are with our kids, you know, the smart parent lets their kid get a little more room as they get older. And I've shared people this. I've seen parents who are still hovering over their teenagers and hovering over them so strongly that the kid cannot, the, the teenager can do anything. And I'm going, you do realize that if you hover too hard over and that person and that teenager has no room, when they get to be a young adult and move out, and you're not there to help them catch them, you're just setting them up for a re- really big failure. Now, I don't mean be so permissive you let them do anything, but you have to be able to say, okay, I'm going to let you make this decision. Here's what I think you should do. Here's wisdom, but I'm going to be ready to catch you when, you when you make the wrong decision and try to help you in the future. God does that a lot with us. All right, here you go. I'm taking my hand out. Are you ready to fall or walk? Or are you ready to run? My hand's off you. We've had the bike. I'm right here behind you just in case. You're now riding the bike on your own. Are you going to keep it up or are you going to fall down? And God will do that sometimes with us. Just step back and say, okay, here's your test. I've taught you. I've instructed you. All right, let's see, how, let's see if you're ready to apply. And he stands back and says, okay, where are you going to be? What are you going to do? And he says, I divided the sea and roared. I am the Lord. And verse 16 says, I have put my words in your mouth and I have covered you with the shadow of my hand. I have that I may plant the heavens and lay the foundation of the earth. God has planted everything. He's in full control. And then he says, and I say unto Zion, you are my people. He says to us as his Christians, his followers, his bride, you are my people. And more specifically for Christians, Jesus is saying, you're my bride. You're my bride. I love it that he loves us. And one of the words that I can't remember where it was, but it says that when he sees us, it takes his breath away. You know, he goes, whoa, this is, this is the one I love. The, the other day I was listening to a pastor and he says, a lot of people get scared when they hear that, that God's eyes are always on them. And he said something very interesting I never thought of. God loves us so much that he can't take his eyes off us. That's how much love he has for us. Wow, that's the one I love. Right there. That's the first. Not, not this icky, you know, he's watching me every moment. But it's like, I desire that one so much, I can't take my eyes off them. Again, going back to his love. It's not, 
I'm looking at them, what, what are they doing? I, you know, I can't wait till they do something wrong so I can punish them. He's looking at us with so much love that his eyes are drawn to us. And when we're his, his children, even more so, he's saying, I want to bless this one. This is my child. I want to bless them as well. The world, he still loves him. He loves him so much that Jesus died on the cross while they, were, while they were his enemy. And he loves the world and he's watching the world saying, won't you please turn your life to me? All the time too, because he loves them. He loves them. And he's looking, oh, you missed that opportunity I put in front of you. All right, let me put another opportunity in front of you. And his eyes are there because he loves them so much. Would you please make the right decision? as they pass by that opportunity and turn the wrong way. And it breaks his heart. God's heart is that all will be saved. And when he has to stand at the white throne judgment and give them what they asked for, which is hell, he's going to know they deserve it, but it's going to break his heart to give it to them, knowing what they've asked for. And it's going to, I expect him to send people to hell with tears in his eyes. Not a maniacal laugh, you know, getting what you deserve. I believe there's going to be tears in his eyes and saying, I gave you so many opportunities and you rejected me. Over and over again, you rejected me. And now I've got to give you what you asked for, but I'm not happy about it. Because you, you get what you deserve. You get the consequences for your choices. We get to stand before him and get rewarded just because we turn our life over to him. And he's going to give us heaven. And he's going to give us rewards. And most of those rewards are things we're not even going to be aware that we deserve the reward for. He's going to say, yep, you see, that's where you encourage that person. That's where you said just the right thing. That was, that was the right thing to say. Here's your reward. And we're going to go, and many of us, you know, I didn't do anything special. And God's going to say, you don't even know all the things you did. You don't even begin to understand all that you have done because I worked through you. When we give the gifts and tithes and offerings to God with a nice, contrite heart with joyfulness and he uses it to bring the world to, to him, you know, uh, we're going to get rewarded. Now, if we're giving him out of a grudging heart, nope, we don't have the reward. We, we, we did what was right but for the wrong reasons. Not rewarded. When we give with the right heart, we speak with the right heart, we act with the right heart, God says, you don't even begin to know your rewards. I think there's people going to be in heaven and saying, God, I have never done anything for you. And God's going to say, you don't even know. You don't even know what you've done. And it's very important. We're going to end here. Lord, we just thank you that you are Lord, that you are sovereign. We ask you to guide and lead us. Show us what you would want us to know and guide us through each of our steps. Lord, crucify our flesh and let us work and live for you in all that we do. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.